I mean, you're making me think about the roles of just these identifiers of top and bottom. Talk a little bit about that and, and uh, complicate that a bit. And why, why we ought to be a bit more thoughtful, nuanced. Um, yeah. The role of top and bottom. Um. <laughs> I am Darnell Moore, and this is Being Seen. An in-depth exploration of culture's role in resolving the tensions between how we are seen and how we see ourselves. Focused on the gay and queer Black male experience, the first season is a space to explore culture with leading artists, writers, activists, and entertainers. If we create nuanced and accurate cultural portrayals of identity and experience, we have an opportunity to reduce stigma and change perception, impacting everything from HIV to institutional inequity. That was George M. Johnson, author of the groundbreaking new book, All Boys Aren't Blue. What role do you play? Do I play? How has the character been defined and what actions are allowed to be taken? Is it something that I have chosen for myself or has it been prescribed by another's idea of what I should be? The roles we play on stages, screens, and in our private lives are sometimes assumed but often imposed. They are at times reflections of how we are seen and at times reflections of how we see ourselves. When we can tell our own stories, name ourselves, and claim our firsts, we can also define our roles, free from stereotype and assumption. This should be easily and without question available to all of us, but it's still not. How do we change that? I specifically wrote in the book that I lost my virginity twice because I wrote about the first experience topping and the first experience bottoming. And I can remember my first experience topping I didn't fully have a, I don't want to say a concern, but I guess I could say a concern for what the bottom may have been experiencing um, because I had never bottomed before. So I can't even know what you're experiencing. And if you are okay or if you're not okay, you aren't, you know, saying that you're not. So I don't even know if I'm doing the right thing or if I'm hurting you or not, because literally I have no experience in this. And I'm assuming that you must have some experience in this just based off of how our interactions went. It wasn't until the first time I bottomed to be like, wait a minute, like, is this what he was experiencing at some point? Or like, what is going on? And so like, then you get into like these conversations where people have these expectations of a bottom that go against anatomy. People have these, (laughs) (laughs) like that literally just physically go against how anatomy works. Um, People have these expectations of how when a person is a top and a bottom, they now assume gender roles of man and woman and feminine feminine and masculine and power and sub. And and literally it cascades into this, this, this interesting model of trying to, I guess, fit what they say, like a, a, a square peg in a round hole where it's like, you know, because I always say this because I feel like black queer people are are in a blueprint situation. Like, I feel like this is our blueprint generation where we have language, we have visibility, we have access, we have some resources. So we're all trying to, like, learn our way through it. I feel like all we knew was that, well, this is the heterosexual model. So we just have to do what we do, but fit it into this model. I think now we are starting to realize, like, that's not realistic, um, that 
the same way it is okay for women to make more money than men it is okay for bottoms to make more money than tops like and i it's funny because to say it out loud sounds silly but really it really is about breaking a construct and breaking a conditioning and a socialization that has told us that we have to be like this what you're talking about really is just what it means to exist as a person who maneuvers through a variety of different identities and different roles and different ways of being in the world. And as someone who occupies, and you talk about this a lot, spaces at the intersections of Blackness and queerness um, and non-binary expression um, and a person living with HIV, right? Yes. Like, mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about the interplay of, of all of those identities, of all of those sort of expressions, of all of those ways of being, of all those roles. Where is the harmony and tension between them? Which you really just, you got it, you, you started hinting at. Yeah, I, I say it all the time, like, You know, I don't wake up as just like one thing. I don't wake up as just black. I don't wake up as just queer. I don't wake up as just HIV pod. Like I wake up as all those things and all of those things inform one another. All of those things talk to one another. All of those things literally dictate why systems of oppression operate in a way that affects certain people more than others, right? Like it's one thing to be black and queer and HIV negative, it's another to be black and queer and HIV positive. Mm-hmm. As an HIV positive person, there's going to be some additional systems that that mess me over. It's one thing to be black and queer and gay. It's another thing to be black and queer and non-binary. Mm-hmm. That that little non-binary piece, it's going to be some other systems that, well, well, I don't want the pronouns. I don't want to do all that. I, I can't deal with all that. And so you then walk through or, you know, walk through the world and you walk through spaces with like layering of oppression and Not to say that, I think there are also like, you know, I'm not big on like using the term macro and micro, micro in the sense of like where the offense occurs. I like to use the term micro in the the term of like leveling of offenses or leveling of things, right? And so it's like on a macro level, yes, the HIV healthcare, it's, it's, a, it's a mess. And like the systems uh, for HIV is a mess. But even just on a micro level, it's the pie shaming. It's the, it's the other, you know, the other things that I deal with. And so it's like you deal with the intersection of where I have to be an activist, not just for people who are positive, but I'm an activist for people to stay negative. And so I have to do double work while also being shamed from both systems at the same time. And that is how, though, I operate within all of the the identities I have. I have to operate like that with my blackness. I have to operate like that with my queerness. But all of those things together, it then like layers the oppression. And it's almost like a Venn diagram where you draw the circles and then like in the middle, it's like, that's George. All these circles go around George, but at the end of the day, George is in the middle and every circle hits George right there in the middle. And so some days that weight becomes a lot to bear because you know, some days all of those oppressions can hit in a different way mm-hmm. uh, at the same time. And so, but again, I think I just try to have like, honestly, I just try to have grace with myself and realizing like, listen, like the cards you would dealt are the cards you would dealt. Um, but the reason that you got these cards, again, is because you know how to play the hand. And so it is your job to play the hand. And so that's what I do every day. I wake up and no matter what additional layer of something I am thrown, I just play the hand that I have and I play it publicly because I want people to bear witness to what it looks like for people who don't have the privilege to walk through the world uh, accepted because of how systems operate. 
families, workplaces, mass media, political work, what role are we often asked to play? In what ways are we allowed to be present as long as we don't ask for too much space for our full selves? Kenyon Farrow, lifelong activist, community organizer, and co-executive director at Partners for Dignity and Rights. I think specifically for Black gay men, um, you know, I think there's the tensions that I see both in terms of our community and then also in terms of way, the ways in which I see us in uh, kind of social movement work. So, you know, I think within our communities, there is, you know, a certain level of, and things I think have shifted over the years, but I think there's still a tension, um, you know, for us to be, you know, we can be be seen and not heard to a certain extent, right? Like, so we, we can be visible, uh, you know, in so much as we are in service to some other kind of project, right? So whether that is, you know, in service to our, our family. So I know a lot of Black gay men for, you know, like in, in cases where we are, you know, don't have children, we're the ones, we're the uncles who are, you know, putting putting kids through private Listen, school. Listen, you hear this, nieces and nephews? You know, or paying for school trips or doing, I mean, that's, you know, that's part of, you know, being uncle, but I, but there's also this kind of like expectation or even, you know, Black gay men I know who end up, you know, where their families. Uh, you know, they end up taking on, you know, being a parent to to nieces and nephews and kids of extended family in, in that that realm. Um, but and so, like, there's this way in which we are still, we just more even now, all the kind of visibility of black gay men in popular culture. There's still a level of which just don't don't be too gay, don't be talking about the kind of sex or romantic life you have or the, the internal life that you have as a Black gay man. And, I, and, I, and, and so like to talk about in the ways it plays out in political work, you know, I see those things too. I see, you know, we are in a, in a place now where there are so many Black queer folks who are in leadership of Black organizations, right? I mean, we see this, you know, across, and but I still see a way in which we can serve in those roles, but if the organizations, while they may have larger kind of social justice or racial justice sort of lenses and ways of doing work, you don't really see work that is specifically talking about our own direct lives as Black gay men within the context of it. Black Queer, trans, and gay men do not exist or create in a communal vacuum. We have and know our people. Within the world of fashion media, there are mavericks who are using their talents to transform culture. And whether they be Black and queer or trans or not, their impact is seen and felt. Samira Nasser, the first woman of color appointed to the role of editor-in-chief at Harper's Bazaar, on the transformative role of media making in these times. Big news this summer, right? You... Yep. It was announced, everybody was talking about it, (laughs) that you are uh, the first woman of color to be appointed editor-in-chief of Harper's Bazaar in the publications, y'all, listen, 153-year history. And we know that the power of first can often... Be that which signifies like greatness, yes, but it also says something about the fact that the fact that we have to have first <laughs> says something about all the work we need to do, right? So we've been talking about first on this podcast, especially historical first in culture. We've also talked about the power of shaping one's own story, 
naming oneself as she wishes to be named. So I want to start with the story that you want to be told about your role as editor-in-chief. How do you want this moment to be described and understood? When I think about this moment and I think about... First of all, I never thought that this opportunity would come to me. Like, it's not even something I ever dreamt of because it's just something that I never thought would be possible. For me, it's just about humanity, you know? It's, I realize that I've always put my head down and I've always just done the work. And it's something that anyone who works for me, I always say, just put your head down and do the work. Don't focus on what other people are doing. Be impeccable with your word. So for me, I sort of got accustomed to doing the most with the opportunities that I was given, but never really thinking that a role like this would be mine one day. I want to bring humanity to this role in that I want the stories that we tell to reflect. I want people to be able to say, wow, you know, Harper's Bazaar under Samira Nasser, I saw the real world. I saw the world. I don't want it to be singular. I want it to be encompassing. I want it to be celebratory. Visibility as an amplifier. How can we use roles to influence those who make it to positions that were always deserved, but too often hard won, have power to create change, to invite more people in. Samira Nasser, Harper's Bazaar, and Mark Meacham, Leave Healthcare. I mean, when I think about the, the world of fashion, the world of style and aesthetics and art, you know, there is certainly, like, that world cannot exist without the molding and the, the ingenuity of Black, queer, and gay men. And yet, um, there's still a way in which we're unseen. How do you... Uh, how do you, I mean, is this, what do you think about this sort of, no, this notion of Black and gay and queer men being unseen in so many of these official spaces? Do you, do you, have you, what's your sort of take on that? What's my take on it is that uh, I, I'm aware of it and it is my job. I've always been one for quiet justice. My dad always told me like, he really taught us about fairness and seeing people. And he always pressed it upon us that like if we had a choice we could make there's power in that choice yes so from whatever role i've had even if i could hire one person you know even if it was just my assistant or if it was like i could hire two people i always made sure to bring in people that i felt needed to be included and so uh i acknowledge that that I can make a difference by creating space Mm. for communities and people. You know, I can, I can invite black queer men to collaborate on my magazine. I can put their name, I can put them on a contribs page. I can ask them to collaborate with us. I can make those choices. And so, and I've always along my way tried to make those choices. And now I just, have more power to bring in more people and I and I will use it <laughs> you know yes. um, because it's time to level the playing field and it's time to give people a seat at the table 
how our identities help to create new spaces and the ways we can use these roles to make change for ourselves and for others. Mark Meacham, Vive Healthcare. When I think about the roles we play, I, th- I you know I think about you know one role is having a role in corporate America, and uh, when I started. Uh, uh, in this particular industry, it was after I finished my MBA program in the mid-90s. And uh, it was uh, still in the mid-90s. It was a very lonely place in corporate America for people of color. Uh, it was almost the kind of attitude of, what are you doing here? That you saw in subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways. And it's not to say that everybody was that way, but it was there in an in-your-face kind of way. And we've come a long way But I think that part of that, which echoes the work that we see in the community, is that people want to be seen. You don't want to be the sole representative of the tribe or the race or the group. And so when we look at the work that we're doing in HME communities, you have to go out and get into these communities. You have to engage with people. And I think having the ability to elevate their voices and take the voice of a 20-something-year-old Black man living with HIV in, in a small southern town and share his experiences and his trials and his struggles um, and what he needs and turns it to overcome the barriers in healthcare and the barriers in society kind of still today for people like that. Um, I think that's, that's a really incredible thing that I'm grateful for to be able to elevate those voices. And I think more importantly, share that impact and share those voices and perspectives, not just you know within the organization and within the company, but within the field of people working in HIV. We have our champions, but we also have our villains. Sometimes they exist outside us, and sometimes they take up space in our own heads. They are often the force that tries to confine us, push us into something that for them feels comfortable and acceptable. How do we recast these villains? See them as part of a system. Understand how this ended up being the role that they felt they had to play. George Johnson. Um, One of the things that I really admire about your writing in this book is your refusal to cast anyone as a one-dimensional character. And I know how difficult it is to write and humanize even the bullies in our lives, the, the quote-unquote villains. It's, it's, you know, as someone who's had to do that on the page, I know how difficult that is of a process. Why was it important for you to write these folk into the book in that way? Why was it important for you to talk about those roles in that way, to humanize them, to make them more nuanced? You know, I feel like, how can I publicly go around professing that I love Black people and that I love Black lives and that I believe in restorative justice and I believe in transformative justice and I believe in abolition and then villainize the very same people I should first be practicing those tools on. And so for me, it was extremely important that even if these people played a role as, quote unquote, a villain in my life or were nefarious or had done things that society deemed incorrect or invalid that I didn't lose them within that experience. Like, these people are not just that experience. And out of 100 experiences, a person can do 99 things wrong. But if they had one thing that was correct, that one thing still needs to be reflected. Because even within that one thing, it is a piece of them. I, as a Black queer person, am told to separate myself all the time. 
you have to be black first. You have to be this first. And I literally profess to people, I don't enter the room as one person. I enter the room as a total person. And so when I am writing black characters, I am oftentimes pushed to my boundaries to remember, I cannot write about these people as just this one thing or just this one experience. If I had someone in my life who did something to me when I was younger, but then later on in life, they became my biggest advocate and became my, my best friend. For me to leave that part out and just leave you with the villain, what am I doing? How, how am I humanizing that person? I'm literally demonizing a person who may have already done the work to becoming the better person that I needed them to be, but I don't give the world the chance to watch them or to witness the work. How does all of this connect to stigma? How do the pressures to occupy spaces or the lack of visibility or the reinforcement of others' perceptions feed its flames? Kenyon Farrow, you've hinted at the next question, really. How do these roles and expectations inform stigma, right? And like, what are the impacts of those stigmas on Black, queer, gay, non-binary, folk like what what the, these these sort of roles and expectations these ideas um the ways that we're sort of elided from from a lot of a lot of spaces um or are used for the benefit of these spaces how does that inform stigmas amongst black queer and gay men you know i think for a lot of us we come up in either our families or just in in the context of the world and understand that you know, there's a certain kind of expectation to be a, a quote-unquote strong Black man, right? And how many times as boys, right, we heard that, right, and were, uh, you know, encouraged to some kind of idea of what being a kind of strong Black man, you know, in the community or whatever was supposed to mean. And I think that, you know, at the, the moment in which you realize, you, as you are coming into your own understanding of yourself and your sexuality, you already know that there's going to be a level of disappointment or you're not already living up to whatever that, you know, kind of ideal about, you know, being a quote unquote strong black man is supposed to be. And that can can play out again in, in the family, in the larger community context, it can play out certainly in the church and, you know, those those other kinds of spaces. And so I think that we then enter uh, a lot of us, I find, who in, enter into uh, adulthood and really wanting to both be of service to Black people and to the community or whatever are also walking in it with feeling that level of stigma and a certain kind of, um, you know, challenge around it. And, and I think in terms of, you know, you add HIV into the conversation and then if you contract HIV, right, as a Black gay man, then there's the level of, like, you have failed doubly, Right. Why can't we define ourselves? Who does it serve to confine us to roles that fit someone else's ideas of what we should be? Do they really benefit us, or is it just another way for systems of oppression to preserve power by enticing those who restrict us to act in their interest? When we allow others to be as they wish, as they imagine, we create freedom for them and for ourselves. 
We stop prioritizing our own comfort over another's happiness. We dismiss false ideas about the norm so that all of our lives can be expansive. We reject the confines of cultural beliefs that were never really ours in the first place. The roles we choose, the roles we play. And just so you don't think that every episode is going to end heavy, we wanted to bring you a little bit of what we all need right now and what Samara is creating with many new people at the table. A table that will include the voices and artistry of queer, trans, and gay Black men. We're going to talk about joy. I can't think that far ahead, but I can tell you for my first issue... The feeling that I'm hoping to capture is joy because there's so much pain right now and it will be a celebration of firsts and I'm hoping to have a lot of first-time contributors who have never felt like they could come to the table at Harper's Bazaar. So I'm hoping for it to be a bit of a celebration. So while I can't speak to like specific stories, I could tell you I'm hoping to capture joy. Yes. Yeah, and we need joy right now, don't we? We need joy and beauty right now. We really do. Being Seen is produced by Harley and & Company and Darnell Moore and created in partnership with Vive Healthcare. Theme music is provided by Moses Sumney.